Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIG founders Frank Van Den Driest and Mark Swan Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is Mark de Swanarons, and I'm very, very happy and proud to have a conversation today with a friend and a colleague for many, many years, Antonio Lucio. Where are you and how are you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in uh, San Francisco right now, uh, early, early morning for me, as it is for many people. I have to say, uh, I'm a bit tired, like most of you probably are right now after this long quarantine and, and mixture of uh, incredible challenges that we're facing as, as a human race. And I am also at a very reflective, if you will, uh, period in my life. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to get into that. Fantastic. On behalf of everyone, thank you so much for making the time in a schedule that I can't even begin to think of what it looks like. Antonio Lucio, the Chief Marketing Officer of Facebook. But if I have to introduce you properly, which I want to, I know that you've been um, elected uh, CMO of the year and global CMO of the year. More importantly, the accolades I know don't mean that much to you. More importantly, you've really laid the path for so many marketers and senior marketers by jumping into roles at the moment when marketing was what the company needed, when marketing was instrumental in major changes in the company, and when marketing was a full business partner, not a function that somehow operated on the side. Um, What I know from your career is uh, we first met some 20 years ago when you were leading the capability thinking at PepsiCo and you were really thinking about how to lift that company to a new level of marketing capabilities. And I think we connected around that theme. Then you moved exactly at the moment that it was important to a visa where they were actually moving from being some collaboration between bankers that uh, provided cards to it becoming a real company. And I remember there was an IPO, road shows, and you were actually telling the world, telling the story of what this new company would and could be. And then what I found so impressive is that when you went into that role, you actually um, not, didn't just lead marketing, but you took an HR role. We'll get to that later. And then again, you made a huge shift to HP where the company was splitting and becoming a completely new company. And again, you were there right there and then and built a capability, a marketing function out of nowhere. And then of course, everyone now knows you jumped uh, into Facebook at a time when that organization uh, uh, was in the news, um, probably more than it wanted to be at the time, but a massive transition dealing with its growth and, and you're there now. That's a journey that so many people can learn from. So Antonio Lucio, it's a, it's a huge honor that you can be part of this humanizing growth series of the Institute for Real Growth. You said already a little bit this, I think you called it a crisis of humanity or you use big words. How would you describe the word today? And what are your biggest learnings of the last few months? So Mark, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And as you know, there's nothing that I like more than having meaningful conversations with with marketing people, I love uh, our craft. I've devoted uh, a lifetime, actually. Mark, next year will be my 40th anniversary in this beautiful craft of, uh, of ours. Like you said, I've had the privilege of working with some amazing companies. I've been blessed by those opportunities, CPG, both in food and health and beauty aids, financial services, fintech, hardware, and now social media. I think we have a combination of factors affecting our world today like nothing I have ever lived and and it's probably closest to to the period in the world during during the 60s where there was a lot of social change a lot of polarizations there were student revolts in Paris there were student massacres in Tlatelolco Mexico there were um, uh, 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 demonstrations and, and, and shootings in, in the U.S. and the University of Kent. Uh, when, when you take a look and, and you read about these times, as 
at Berkeley as well. You know, now we see them with this veil of, uh, of, of music because we, we experience this through movies and it's almost heroic and aspirational. When you actually read through what was going in, in, in those times, those were really, really, really hard times. There was war, now we have a pandemic, incredible social unrest, uh, major economic crisis, different generational shifts all going through power. And, and that's kind of where we are today. In my experience, when, when we're going through times of change like that, and I don't think I've ever seen them at this scale. I was in New York for 9-11. Visa became public right in the middle of the recession, 2007-2008. I don't think we have seen anything like this because of the multiple layers of issues and the true global scale. I think it's a really, really important moment for us to reflect as human beings, which is where I am right now, deeply involved in those reflections as to what is our calling, our calling as people, but more importantly, as our calling as business leaders. I think it's time for leadership, given the um, pressures that we're facing, our companies are looking for opportunities for growth. And if there's one word that should describe marketing, and for some reason we've forgotten about it, the, the reason for being of marketing is to, to drive growth by building brands that stand the test of time. We own the consumer interaction. We, at this, at this moment, because of everything that is happening right now, it, it's to use, uh, to use uh, one of my friends' uh, best saying, an obsession with consumer understanding, because I have to say that I've seen them change from week to week. The issues that we were having going through COVID in the different areas of the world now have shifted to racial injustice, the, the mood, the, the language required to connect with consumers changes. So I don't think there's ever, ever been a bigger opportunity for our function than, uh, than right now. So I'm, I'm privileged to be part of this craft and to, and, and to be able to still hold a chair. You know, as I, as I listen to you, Antonio, and reflect, I mentioned Berkeley, there's, there's a documentary on Netflix at the moment, which if you haven't seen it to everyone that's listening and looking, I would recommend so highly. It's 13th, which is about yes, the I have. very, very powerful. But what struck me, he who rules rights history is, you know, the, the, the summer of 68, which for any person of color was one of the most painful, one of the most deadly one of the most uprising-like summers. And it was rewritten with that pink veil of the summer of love because yeah. there were also hippies enjoying Woodstock. So I was born in Berkeley in 65, so it's close. And now I'm in Woodstock, upstate New York. And of course, that was also in the same period. And, and actually, when you, when, when you listen and look at that documentary, you realize how misconstrued history is when actually much bigger things, much more important and painful things were happening. It is an enormous change. And I want to push on this because I think we agree. Uh, you, you talked about this consumer obsession. One of the things that we've been doing in this leadership program of the Institute for Real Growth is really saying we've got to move away from either the, the, the shareholder privacy or broaden that to a multi-stakeholder perspective, really to realize that all those stakeholders, companies cannot grow unless they realize what their needs are and they create value for all of their key stakeholders. Is, is that a, a way of thinking, uh, one that you find yourself aligned with and that you also find is becoming more prevalent, perhaps just because of the last few months or even more fundamentally? Really, really good point, Mark. This is not something that is happening today. It may have been accentuated today, but the trend is, is been coming, in, coming on for, for a number of years. What so, one of the things that social media has done is the convergence of all the stakeholders. We are all reading the same things. We have all access to the same information. There was a time when I started my career where the PR team was talking to journalists and they have a journalist type of narrative. The, the policy team 
was talking to opinion leaders and, and, and politicians, and they have their own narrative. The HR team was talking to employees, and they have their own narrative. And then the marketing team was doing their own thing with the consumers. They all had different research. They all have different storylines. They were sort of loosely tied at the, at, at the very top level. Today, you cannot afford to do that. There is a convergence of all the stakeholders navigating through the digital world and through social media that really requires total integration of the messages to ensure that the narrative is consistent. Because if you're inconsistent with any of those narratives, you're gonna be called out within minutes. So that is one of the characteristics that the new CMO has to have in mind. When you talk about your, your, your Da Vinci, your da Vinci mo model, the whole idea of threading the needle of all of this and doing it through influence, because whether you have comms or not is irrelevant, you still have to deal with policy, you still have to deal with HR, you still have to deal with your clients, you still have to deal with your consumers and ensuring consistency of purpose and narrative, if you will. This is something that we discussed a little bit in uh, one of the earlier conversations with uh, Michael Diamond, Professor Michael Diamond of New York, who's one of the faculty of the Institute for Real Growth. And, and we talked about how indeed the CMO is uh, collaborating closely. Johnny Wata, who I know is also a friend, has always been very much a, has taken a sort of comms perspective, was the CMO at IBM, but also really a, a comms person, has talked a lot about the collaboration. And on the one hand, it seems like B2B companies, it's more the chief communication officer that leads a lot. And then in B2C companies, it's the CMO where Keith Reed and Mark Pritchard are taking responsibility for both. Now at Facebook, you have a very famous comms colleague in Nick Clegg, former spokesperson for, uh, or communication head for the, the British prime minister. Can you talk a little bit about how that collaboration works? First I <laughs> I love Nick. He's a phenomenal uh, individual, typical British uh, scholars. He speaks so eloquently and, and well, has a wicked sense of humor. And the best part of Nick Clegg is not Nick Clegg, is the fact that he's married to a Spanish lady uh, uh, who, likes, who, likes, who likes jamón ibérico like I do. So it's uh, the whole package. All kidding aside, um, the level of collaboration that is required from me and him to ensure consistency of the narrative, whether he's talking to the EU or he's helping Mark uh, navigate uh, the US Congress, or um, we, we are dealing with um, opinion leaders around the world. We worked in close collaboration to ensure that there is consistency. We worked at two levels, if you will. There is the the corporate narrative and the corporate brand when facebook speaks as a corporation there there is complete alignment what he's saying what mark is saying the communication that the corporation will say across its its multiple channels that is complete alignment and we we meet weekly and and we do it together when it comes to the actual brands and the, re the, the relationship of the actual brands or the individual apps, the Facebook app, the Instagram app, Messenger, uh, WhatsApp, or even some of our services like Portal or, or Oculus, that is more of a direct-to-consumer communications where the, the comms part of it is just an amplification of that. So there is a, a very clear distinction as to the things that we are doing completely together uh, versus the things in which we sometimes we lead and sometimes uh, they lead and, and we support. So that, that's, that's critical in, in the case of Nick. Also, he's uh, one of the uh, very few other people of my generation at Facebook. So uh, we have a different <laughs> take on life for the most part. <laughs> so, so, look, I, I think you're in, um, you know, there's a few companies in the world where they have such high-powered high individuals in both those roles if we if we sort of take a perspective of all the other companies that uh, leaders are listening to uh, it's probably you have one or the other and in this case we have on the program we have mostly chief marketing officers do you think anything changes about the chief marketing role because of this multi-stakeholder perspective what kind of things if you don't have a nick clegg 
thinking about some of the things that he does. What does it change for all other CMOs? What, if you had to develop the, the competencies, you've seen the profile that we use, what do you think the average CMO should be adding to their weaponry, uh, to their arsenal of competencies? Like you said, I've had um, both types of roles. I, I, I've had the role where marketing and comms were completely integrated functions, both at Visa and HP. And I've had roles like the one I currently have where, where the roles is separated. What is very important to establish is the distinction when we are talking about the corporate brand and the corporate narrative, what does this corporation is there to do in the world? And why is this corporation doing it? Uh, and the, uh, let, let's call it the engagement and commun communication plan for the corporation. That's where there is significant need for collaboration. If the company, like it was the case at Visa, HP, and now at Facebook, if the company and main brand name are the same, the need for collaboration is critical. When it is not, there is significant more leeway to have a bit more, a bit more separation. When it comes to the actual offerings, to the actual consumer offerings, there's, there's, a, there, there's a, a, a different task there where the direct-to-consumer relationship should be led by marketing and then comes actually amplified across the other stakeholders that are required for any meaningful engagement in today's marketing world. Yeah, I know. I want to actually use it a little bit to segue into the CMO role in general. You mentioned purpose quite early on. And uh, the problem with knowing each other a long time is that um, I, I, I certainly find myself telling uh, your story and, and, and then I probably made the story more beautiful than it actually is. You can correct me if, if it's the case. But the story that I like to tell about you is when you joined Visa, that actually uh, you, you mentioned already yourself, the financial crisis was happening. The word banker was about the biggest insult you could think of to uh, call someone. And although Visa wasn't a banker, it was certainly a credit card institution with its reputation challenges with the industry. But you've also mentioned purpose, and I know how important purpose is to you. What I was so impressed with was the story where you told me that, as any marketer would, you went back to the roots of the brand, and you found and you met the original founder of the company who created it, and now you correct me here if, if I say it too beautifully, but who actually created this credit card because he thought it was unfair that people of lesser wealth, of lesser means, couldn't easily buy things out of state because it, the, 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 the cross-state banking system is so prehistoric in this country. And, and, and he created a means for them to democratize cross-state payments and, and actually allow people to purchase much more widely across the country. By going back to that purpose, and we always say companies were never created to make a lot of money. They were created by people that wanted to make a difference. By going back there, that's where you found the kernels of the positioning of the brand. And, and that's where you went back to also internally uh, talking, get, getting the company to, to rediscover its pride. And so as a marketer, and, and, and if you look at company purpose, what is the role of the CMO there? Because of course, the CEO owns the company, leads the company, but the CMO has such an important role. How do you see that? And especially today. Really important question. I, I, I think we have to separate corporations that have been around for a very long time uh, from more, more recent uh, sort of companies. So working with Mark Zuckerberg, for example, is the first time that I'm working on a founders-led led, led company. And, and, and it has its difference, and we'll get to that in a minute. But overall, uh, as I went into Visa, as I went into HP, and as I entered Facebook, I always start with the same approach. Why was this company ever invented? What was the purpose? What was the idea uh, behind, the, behind the founder? In the case of Visa, I had the privilege that D-Hawk um, was still alive. And I went to Seattle and spent probably five of the most meaningful hours that I have ever spent with someone. And 
you know, the only thing that I had to do was actually take his words, which was, I want to create a universal currency for life and commerce. That was what he was trying to do. And it was impossible because um, at the time, if, if you wanted credit or you wanted access to funds, each bank will have its own approach and, and, and you would bring, each bank will issue their own cards and you will have to go in and they will have to pick up the phone and call the merchant, will have to call the bank. And I mean, it was just uh, incredibly inefficient. And he came up with this, this concept, which was a service center for all the banks and one unified brand that will democratize money. I had the privilege that the company was going to become a publicly traded company for the first time, that it was going to become one unit as opposed to a separation of multiple units. So there was a need for a unified vision. My boss was an operating type of guy that delegated that to me. And again, since I was new, if I would have gotten the typical research route with a consultant, I would come in with beautiful flowery language and everybody will go, uh, well, I like it or I don't like it. The moment that I came in with the words of the founder, it wasn't an Antonio concept. It wasn't a, a concept came out of a, a, an agency. These were the freaking words of the, of, of the founder. And by the way, it, 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 it is incredibly powerful in bringing the, the company back together because the assessment was, and we did the same thing at HP was, okay, what are the things of the original vision that we want to keep? And what are the things that we want to change? And, and that was a beautiful exercise under that new mission statement. The, whole, the same whole thing came up at HP where we're splitting the company into two, we had to reframe it and all that. What did I do in this case? Bill and Dave or Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard were not alive, but they had left, oh my God, a, a wealth of documents and, and philosophies. And, and they were all about reinvention and, and, and fixing uh, problems through technology and making it available worldwide. So once again, new management team, some people from the old guard, very few of us from the, from the new guard, the moment that the uh, words of the founder became alive, it became a, a, an amazing and a, a way of energizing energizing the company and the exercise was exactly the same. What are the things that we want to keep or what are the kids that we want to change? In the case of Facebook is, is, um, is very different. Mark is alive. Mark is 35. Mark is going to be around for a very long period of time. So any questions, any issue related to that particular vision, he is there to answer. My task there or our task, the task that Nick, Nick and I have is, you know, because the company have not had a consistent narrative and an ongoing dialogue with its multiple stakeholders, it's probably one of the most misunderstood companies in the world. And it's our fault for not clarifying that. And our role has been explaining who Mark is and what the company stands for, whether you agree or disagree with the company is, is, is your decision, but at least you understand that when Mark talks about freedom of speech, when he talks about the need for neutrality, for when he talks about amplifying voices, because that is better for, for society, these are principles that he believes very much and people need to understand where he's coming from so that they can understand the decisions that are made. Again, whether we agree with them or, or not, it's important that, that that position remains clear. But once again, it goes back to what, why was the company founded in, in the first place? And what, is, what should be that vision? What are the things of that vision that should be kept and should evolve? And then energizing the company around that, that vision. That's kind of the, the process that, that we felt we've, we've followed over the last uh, now two decades. Yeah, so it, it, it's really nice how you were able to contrast the two because I think I think probably 95% uh, of, um, of our participants and probably marketers are in roles where the founder is no longer there. And in fact, very often, Frank and I wrote about this in HBR, um, where, the, where the founder was very successful. Um, I remember in a previous life, we were marketing consultants and we worked with Sony on the global brand positioning of the brand. 
and in the Sony Museum, which is in the headquarters, we found a piece of paper with the two founders holding a piece of paper that they'd handwritten just as the, as the city of Hiroshima was smoldering around them, literally. And they said, we want to show the world that Japanese technology can be beneficial. It, it, you know, they, they, they went all the way back to the roots. Most often, this, the founder isn't there. The founder isn't developing. And, and, and your role is to go back and find what it was that they meant. And, and, and the leadership now is uh, CEOs and maybe CFOs that have become CEOs that, uh, that then take the company to the next stage. So that, that role is very clear. You talked about purpose and, 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 and actually understanding what the purpose of those founders was. Can I ask you a little bit about your purpose? You talked about how that became very clear to you at one point, and I'd love you to talk a little bit about how you bring that to work then. Yeah, I, 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 I believe that people that are grounded in, in deep personal purpose are going to build purposeful brands. That's integrity, if you will. I was a late bloomer to purpose. It, I, I found it relatively late in life. I was uh, 44 at the time, uh, and it came out of a of personal challenges. At the at, at the time, I was diagnosed with chronic depression, and um, I had to pause. I was traveling. I was uh, the head of marketing for PepsiCo International, traveling like crazy, jet lagged most of the time, like most of the people in this. In this room, I was completely unbalanced. I got, I got into trouble that way. I was, I, I was not able to sleep. I was going through all sorts of physical and emotional challenge, challenges. I didn't know why, and then I had to seek help and understood that this was, um, it was a condition, cr chronic, chronic depression. So I had to pretty much reground myself. I PepsiCo at the time was really amazing with me because I told them, listen, I, I, I can travel this much anymore i need time to reground myself so if, if there's a job that you guys uh, have that i can do while not traveling as much is great if not then I'm, I'm ready to to move on because i i do need to take care of this that meant uh medication that meant therapy that meant a change of lifestyle that meant a lot more grounding and less traveling if you will at the time also i i sort of had to re-anchor myself and, and come to terms to what it is that I wanted uh, that I wanted to do in life. I had been running since I was uh, 21 and, and, and got out of the university running from from Procter & Gamble to Kraft to PepsiCo like uh, international career just running 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 running. Um, this was um, life. L life had given me two, two pauses um, over the last 40 years this was one and at the time i had to think through what is it that i i wanted to do uh, at the time i came to terms with after a lot of reflection a lot of conversations with people that i cared about because the most important the most important part of of who you are is how the people that really care about you feel about you the rest is yeah. fame and the rest is it's 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 really not 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 that meaningful. Uh, but the, the, your your true legacy begins with the, the people that you have very close to you. And and, and at the time uh, and after a lot of reiteration, because this this takes time and this takes conversation and the, and this takes debate, um, internal and external with your in group, if you will. I came up with my role in life is to create environments where people working together can achieve extraordinary things while finding meaning and well-being so if i'm not creating the environment i'm out of purpose if people are not working together and i'm not facilitating them working together whether it is family or work i am out of purpose and i don't feel happy if we're not achieving extraordinary things things that we didn't think that we could uh, when we started again whether that's personal or, or that's professional I'm out of passion, and if we're not finding meaning or we're not finding well-being, I'm out of purpose. So that actually became a, a little bit of a, a guiding post for the evaluation of relationships, both personal and professional, uh, jobs, as well as um, as the task that the tasks that 
I was going to fulfill, then I seem, like you said, to be drawn to very difficult situation, whether it is taking a company public for the first time or a company that is being split or a company that it's under severe uh, reputational and brand problems. That's how I approach that through through the lens of, of my purpose. Over time though, uh, Mark, then particularly over the last five, six years, the mission has remained consistent. What has evolved right now is where am I going to bring that mission or purpose to life, which is, it's my commitment, particularly it has become clear to me within this last three to four months that my my reason to live today for this last chapter of my corporate life will be will be to bring transformational change to the marketing and advertising industry and to make sure that diversity inclusion and equality is really present around the world that's what i can do that's what i've been working on as a side job for for a very long time, that's where I want to spend most of my time today. Hopefully I can do it within my current company, but if not over time, uh, that's what I really, really uh, want to do. I can bring a lot of value. I can bring a, a lot of experience on it. And, uh, and I think that it is needed. Um, it's needed more than, more than ever, given the historical moment that we're living today. Well, that's I was just gonna say, it, it, it's almost like the world is catching up with you. So we, we started, the Institute for Real Growth with three days of brainstorming and thinking in Cannes two years ago. And as part of the scoping of the role, almost the whole group, there were 20 thought leaders around at the time, they went to your speech. And without exception, they all came back and said, this is what we need to be about. This is what we need to um, include here because Antonio is talking about the need for diversity in an industry which actually influences the whole world. And it's, it starts there. So I, 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 I really would like you to talk a little bit more because this on the line, listening and viewing are all these leaders where I think you and I will agree that 80%, 90% of their hearts is in the right place. They want to do the right thing. They just don't know how. Talk a little bit about what you think needs to happen and how you started that journey. Listen, there are no shortcuts to this. Just like any, any major transformation that I have been involved with on the business and on the brand side uh, requires the same thing, which is holistic and, and systemic change. You need to set a very clear vision as to where you're going to go. You need to set very specific objectives. You need to set very specific very specific programs, you need to set very specific measurements, feedback mechanisms, and then start all over again, year after year, after year, after year. It's, it, for some reason, we're talking about if diversity was something else other than a major uh, transformation, it is a business, uh, it, it is a business transformation. And the, and the time to do it, given where we are in the world today and the need for, for racial justice. There are many things that we could do in that world. I don't think that I will have enough time in my life to, to fix the problem of racism in the world, but damn it, I think I have enough time to actually fix it within the context, context of, of our industry. Um, we know exactly what we, we need to do. I am tired already of seeing all the business cases for diversity. It's be, every year we have a new consulting firm that shows that diverse firms actually perform better. If they have people in the boards, they perform better. If they have people in senior management, they perform better. If they have people in key positions, they perform better. We've seen this over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, we've, we've all shared the best practices. We've all shared the playbooks. We've all gotten to the award ceremonies and I've gotten several of those. And it's like, okay, so now we go, now we go into the, the historical moment that we're living today where all the brands and all the, um, all the um, uh, uh, advertising uh, holding groups, uh, uh, all, the, all the big big companies, including mine, by the way, 
we're going to make pronouncements, now we're going to set objectives, and by the way, there's millions of dollars that we're going to provide to ensure that this happens. You know, I hope that we take advantage of this moment now um, and that we mean what we say and we say what we mean, but it is time to hold each other accountable. Every, everyone should publish their scorecards. Everyone should call each other out because it is critically, critically important that we do. And let me, if, 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 if you bear with me for a couple of minutes on, on, on the things that as, a, as an industry we, we can do and we must do. Um, um, uh, uh, first, I've been a CMO uh, a long time, so I, I, I have nothing but empathy and understanding for all the people that are in this call today and the pressures that you're getting from consumers, from employees, from boards, and from, uh, from CEOs to do something and to do something about, about the situation that we have and racism and, and all that. And I think it's your responsibility to hold um, platforms like mine accountable to ensure that there is brand safety and to ensure that there is civility. Why? Because you are the brand stewards. Brand, brand steward is probably the most important role that you're playing today. Yes. You must demand, and platforms like ours need to do significantly, significantly better. I'm working to do that with, with a lot of people inside the company. We must do better, but let's be holistic about this because brand safety, brand values, civility should be applied to everyone. And I'm not, if I was not the CMO of Facebook, I would be saying the same thing. That's one thing that we all need to do. Mark Pichard mentioned that uh, last week. We, we need to hold Facebook first because it's the biggest accountable, but we need to hold every other platform, whether it is online or offline, accountable as well. Newspapers, radio, TV, everything. It's really important that we do. Yeah, so I was just going to say, because of course, there's a lot of people that are asking those questions. I will get to the Q&A. But, but, but even just to start inside the house, because you said that the playbooks have been shared. Yeah. If you, would, if, if you don't mind, actually do talk a little bit about the playbook. Because okay. I don't know, what is my play? Where do I really start? So again, the, 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 first, we need to take a total ecosystem view. When we say diverse teams perform better for complex tax, tasks requiring a creative um, uh, solutions, which is what the research actually does. For simple tasks, homogeneous teams perform better. There's no question about that, simple task. If you're talking about complex tasks requiring creative solutions, that's where diversity comes, becomes a, a, a significant part. And that's what we're facing today. We, we're, we're facing complex tasks requiring creative solutions. So you need to take a holistic, holistic uh, view. That means the marketing teams, again, I'm controlling what I can control. I'm very clear about that. Even if the rest of the company is not performing, I can act upon the things that I can act. Let's start so, there and then we'll build yeah, out. We'll build out. By, by the way, success begets success. So if you're doing great, all other functions will, will, will align themselves over time. No question. I've seen it happen. So marketing team needs to be diversified, particularly on the senior, on the senior roles. You should invite your agencies, your agency partners to actually set their own targets to diversify as well. Um, uh, with female and people of color as, 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 as their priority, especially in senior roles, not at the junior level, that's easy to do, at senior roles, that's where you can impact the communication. Then you need to go into the production side of the house, um, you know, behind and in front of the camera to ensure that you have the representation there as well and then that there's the adequate representation of the society in which you're participating around the world in the communication that you're saying. And then you need to have measurements for all this. There's a, within uh, the US, we've used the GEM score from the ANA and the CIIM, which is, again, are, are we depicting our, our, our society the way that it is? 
And at HP, I, ha I don't have enough data for, a for Facebook yet, but I will. You were able to establish a direct correlations between higher GEM and CIIM scores and work that actually performed better. That's kind of the playbook. It needs to be led from the top. We delivered, um, uh, meaning you drive your team composition, nobody else but you as a, as a CMO. You drive the requirements that you're making to your agency partners. Last year at Cannes, we had our five new partners, Droga, Wyden and Kennedy, Leo, uh, Ogilvy and BBDNO, and we said, okay, you want our business? This is, this is what we need. We want to have the most diverse group of people at the creative and strategy roles, which is the ones that make a difference, driving our business. And by the way, then we link into the, into the production to actually do uh, the same thing. And we're keeping scores across the totality of the value change. We evaluate this initially was every two months. Now we do it on a quarterly basis to ensure that we're making that, that we're making progress. That's the playbook. That there's so let, let me ask you one more thing, because this is, I, I get all that, and it's pretty clear, and there's basically no excuse for not doing this, full stop. But what about the content? So, as you know, uh, Frank and I were closely involved, and in fact, uh, Sylvia Lagnado will be in your seat a few weeks from now, a, a, a shared friend. Um, when we started working on Dove Real Beauty 20 years ago, um, the impact was the programs, you know, uh, at some point, 7 million kids went through a program to debunk the myth of real beauty and show that there was photo manipulation of images and so. But the real impact the brand was making was, yes, the teams were diverse and so, but was the, was the actual communication that was reaching billions of impressions. So have you thought through and is there any sort of thinking to help the leaders that Yes, I want to get my brand message across, but in all my messaging to the world, in all my engagement with consumers, I'm also impacting how they feel, think, and do. So the actual content, the effect that our brand communication has on people, that's much more difficult, I imagine. What have you heard that are guiding principles in this area? Well, it all starts with... Uh with an obsession for, for consumer understanding and an understanding of the, of the dynamics of the different groups that are present in a, in a society. I think for many years as marketers, we've had this total market focus, which means that we create the average of the average of the average to create this single message that is uh, uh, directed to this hypothetical consumer that has nothing to do with the real consumers that are consuming our products. So it starts with that. Uh, that should translate into the actual brief. And then when you have uh, a group of people that are uh, across the, tot the totality of the, of the value chain, the output is going to be significantly, significantly better. I've seen that and I've been able to measure dramatic results when we're able to depict consumers the way that consumers want to be depicted, when you're able to rid yourself from, from, uh, from stereotypes. And, 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 and I have to say that it has become really critical in, 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 in countries like the US, like the UK, like France, that have a history of, uh, of uh, racial conflict, understanding those dynamics and how to address them and how to depict them in our communication. It's not, I, I happen to believe that it's no longer a nice to do, it's a must do to be able to to be able to be present in culture in a relevant sort of way. Can I push it even further? This is a pet peeve of my wife's. We were on a trip in Asia recently. The, the terrible thing as you travel through there is that all the malls look the same. If you go to the bigger shopping mall in Shanghai, Singapore, Japan, it doesn't make a difference. And then what got my, my wife so mad was that the ads that were depicting the luxury products that we're all supposed to aspire to featured Western people, not Asian people, not Chinese people in China. And so you say, depict people how they want to be depicted, but sometimes, you know, there's a history there. And here are brands that are perpetuating the, uh, the, the fact that actually what I need to be aspiring to is to look like this Western lady. At what point does the brand actually go a little bit against what the current thinking is of what 
beauty looks like or the current thinking is of what I should be aspiring to, to actually not play that game and perpetuate the systematic racism that's there. How do you even address a question like that? I, I think that we're going through a, um, you have to, with, when, when you talk about this obsession for consumer understanding, you would see today that the world has uh, moved towards hyper-nationalism. Uh, the pendulum has shifted from global to local and from local to community, if you will. And I think that at this moment, there is nothing more important that brands can do to be able to connect with those local consumers in those particular terms. Without that, I think we're going to err on the relevant side, which by the way, many of the brands that you're talking about on the luxury category have, have made significant mistakes particularly nowadays, that you can be called for uh, just by, by trying to project a, a globalistic view of the world that is not relevant whatsoever. So the, the one thing that I, I, I have to say, Mark, is as marketers, we have significantly more power than we think we do. We really do, particularly at this moment where the world needs growth and the world needs purpose. And in addition, and let me say that very clearly, in addition, because this has to be fixed, to dealing with issues of brand safety and civility, that needs to be done. There are three things that I think we need to double down on. First and foremost, we all, let's be honest, I've worked in multiple categories, so I can say that. We all have in our product portfolios, brands and or marketing approaches and or services and or value chain issues that we should deal with. There are some brands that have stepped forward and said, you know, this, this, this and these brands were tied to the history of, of slavery. We should eliminate that. But we have multiple categories that have had a history of prejudice or perpetuating stereotypes. We also have brands, both in food and in industrial goods, where, where the supply chain is not clean. Right. Where we come, we, where, where, where we stand for values with the black community in the United States and in Europe, but we forget about those values when we talked about Africa and emerging markets. We have the power to actually address those issues holistically, just the same way that we have the power to tell Facebook and all the channels in the world, get your act together. We have the power internally to actually do that. The next thing is we have the power to drive the total ecosystem in terms of diversity, inclusion, and equality. It's sickening to me that for many years, as marketers, we have adopted cultural appropriation from the black culture or from the Hispanic culture or from many cultures around the world where our senior leadership teams sometimes don't even have one black person, not one. And we're there talking about for our brands, one thing, and internally, we're doing something, something completely, something completely different. It's time that we take this seriously. And then the third part is what you were saying. Let's just make a commitment that when we're putting communication in the world, for God's sake, is a representation of the people that we serve, without prejudice, without stereotypes, just people the way that they want to see themselves. We can do that. We can do those four things. We can demand brand safety, we can demand having the right product portfolio and the right supply chain, we can demand the level of, of, of representation, inclusion and equality in our system, and we should drive the way that we communicate, that, communicate with the external world. That if uh, uh, whatever I have left in my corporate world, wherever I am, that's what I wanna to work towards because that is something that we control, nobody else has, Nobody else, we don't need to change the law. We, do not, we don't need to go for racial justice. This is us. That's if, and by the way, if we don't do this, shame on us, shame on me, shame on Antonio Lucio. That's how strongly I feel about this. This is, this is our calling, this is our moment, this is, this is our war, or this is my war. In earlier conversations, you said never waste a crisis, but this is uh, that that's almost opportunistic now. If I can just connect it to the people that are listening, a lot of these leaders are the marketing leaders that have completed three modules 
of the Real Growth Leadership Program. And literally next week, the agenda for everyone is, now what's the impact that I will have delivered by the end of 2020? What is the impact that I expect to have delivered a few years from now? So the timing of this conversation, Paul Pullman uh, previously, I, I think you saw that, said you have no excuse. No one, no one needs to give you space. You need to take the space. And what you're very clearly saying is not just like any other executive, because every executive has these responsibilities, but we in the marketing and communication have such an enormous impact in terms of actually shaping how people feel and think. And that is a weapon and it's power for good, depending on how you depend to yield it. So Antonio, uh, I'm not gonna take anything away from that except to say, you couldn't have been here at a better moment and you couldn't have been a better contributor. And uh, I, I, I wanna, on behalf of everyone, I wanna, I wanna truly thank you for your contribution and, and, and I hope that as we go through this, because these are all marketing leaders trying to figure it out and you're ahead, you're, you're fighting even bigger fights and I respect you for that, but that we can keep counting on you to help the pack, the other leaders, the younger leaders, the upcoming CMOs to keep learning from you, from what went well and what didn't go well. Can we keep counting on you for that? The industry- uh, you, can count, you can count on me for- Forever, I am deeply proud of, of our craft. I, I, I love what we can do. I think this is, this is the right moment. Mentoring is what I love doing, as you know, and I, there would be a time in my life where I will be doing that uh, full-time and for free. Uh, so the answer is yes, this is our time, uh, people. This is, our, this is our moment. Yes, it is. Antonio Lucio, thank you so much. Thank you.